This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our scripture this morning is the Holy Gospel of John, John 3, 14 to 21. And it reads, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Most of us could quote that one by heart. Our text continues, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be seen clearly that their deeds have been done in God. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, we've all seen the signs, haven't we? You know, our theme this morning is on John 3.16, trying to understand it and trying to get beyond misunderstandings of it. And at sporting events, it is not uncommon to see someone holding a sign that says John 3.16. And often, right, they're conveniently situated in great seats. If it's a baseball game, like right behind home plate, or at a football game, maybe they're behind the uprights, somewhere where the camera will focus in on them, right? And they know that they'll be on TV a lot, and people will see this message. Well, what makes this verse so important? So important that if you could say anything to an audience, the one thing you'd want to say is this verse. Must be important and certainly worth our exploring a bit this morning. Well, it talks about God's love, right? And who doesn't want to share God's love? Again, most of us know this verse by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You could say it blindfolded and backwards. Not sure if that makes it harder, but there it is. Well, it seems lovely, right? A beautiful sentiment that God so loved the world. But of course, it comes wrapped in a theological context, right? That's what's so critical in understanding this or or any other uh, verse that's popularly shared is that the verse on its own is one thing, and we need to do everything we can to understand that. But when folks share it, they're sharing it in a theological context context where there's already a whole theology wrapped around it that shapes their understanding of what that verse means. 
And a lot of times to get to a truer meaning of a text, we have to unwrap some of those theological assumptions, which become layers, uh, which often keep us from getting at the, the, the text itself. And part of this theological context uh, is the assumption that Jesus came primarily to address what happens after we die, whether we're going to go to heaven or to hell. And many theologians, N.T. Wright among them, notes that one of the greatest uh, disservices we can do to Jesus and his teachings is to assume that he was primarily about what happens after we die. And so that's one of the main assumptions. And part of that assumption, if we look at the, the darker side, uh, the darker theological assumption is that if God didn't give his son, pardon the pronouns, but using the sort of classical reading of this, there would be literal hell to pay, right? That if God didn't give Jesus, there would be literal hell to pay. Again, let's hear it again. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, it's easy, of course, to skip over that perish part, but we can't, right? Because it's um, a core part of the theological framework people are bringing to this text. And so the understanding is that without Jesus, people will perish. Now, of course, I might agree that without Jesus, in his example of love, welcome, nonviolence and compassion, that humanity would be in a worse, more precarious place. But I don't think that's what they read this as, right? By perish, they read that as meaning that God will send you to eternal damnation where you will suffer unimaginably for eternity. It reminds me of that scene in Return of the Jedi right before they go out on uh, Jabba the Hutt's sail barge and Luke and Han Solo and Chewbacca are going to be thrown into this sand pit toward this creature in the desert, right? You remember that scene, classic scene, right? R2-D2 serving drinks, that whole thing. C-3PO says, You will therefore be taken to the dune sea and cast into the pit of Kakun, the nesting place of the all-powerful Sarlacc. Han Solo says, doesn't sound so bad. C-3PO goes on. In its belly, you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are slowly digested over a thousand years. Chewie gives a groan and Han says, on second thought, let's pass on that, huh? And that's my response to the theology that misunderstands John 3.16. Let's pass on that. And the verses right after John 3, 16, 17, and 18 go on to say that people who do not believe in Jesus are condemned already. Condemned. A harsh word. Well, there's been a big hubbub uh, lately around an event that happened recently at Calvin University. I'm sure you, you read about it on social media or saw it on the news Right? There were some students uh, who set out a table with a sign that said LGBTQ is a sin. The Bible says, change my mind. Ugh. Right? Awful. 
Well, thankfully, many students and professors spoke out against this. And of course, there were conservative pastors who were supportive of the students and who felt that the outcry against these students in their stance was another element, I presume, of cancel culture. But these conservative pastors uh, were discussing this and trying to justify their theological stance that agreed with these students in their sign. And one of them posed the question, will people in hell still have the image of God in them? He answered his own question. They will not. It will be revoked. In hell, all godlike qualities and attributes in a person will cease. God's image will be completely and finally stripped from the eternally damned. This is part of what makes hell such an awful place, his pastor wrote. It makes me sick. I don't even know how to respond to that. It honestly makes me sick that there are pastors with this perverted view and perverted theology who are preaching every week to congregations here in West Michigan and beyond. I also believe he threw in the word reprobate out there, uh, a word which theologically means someone God is destined for hell who can never be saved. Can you imagine this? And so we have to recognize, right, that as we, you know, see verses like this, that people will share in a spirit of love, they will say. Underneath it is the idea that all who don't convert to our religion, convert to our values, convert to our way of life and to our theology and our, our way of thinking, all those people are damned. Damned. And not only are they damned, but in hell they won't even have the image of God. Do you see what's happening here? It is a process of dehumanizing people and rationalizing it, justifying it with your theology. It's an ugly and terrible thing to behold, and I want no part of a theology like that. Well, thankfully, we don't have to throw out verses like this because a closer look shows that these are poor readings of them anyway. Now, the context here in our text is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. The beginning of chapter 3 has Nicodemus, a Pharisee, coming to Jesus by night, secretly, and though by the time it gets to our text, it isn't clear really if Jesus is still speaking or if the voice has now shifted to the narrator or the author of the gospel. Uh, but that's just a little bit of the context here, the situation in which these verses come out. And in either case, our text begins with a reference to Moses, right? Verse 14 says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you remember that story of the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness? It comes from uh, Numbers 21 in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, a scene where on the journey from Egypt in the wilderness, uh, the people, as often happens, are hungry, tired, and cranky. 
And frankly, uh, after a year of pandemic and waking up on a morning where we were shorted one hour of sleep, we might be a little tired and cranky as well. But I digress. He, uh, Numbers 21.5 says, The people spoke out against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. What kind of menu do you have for us here? Moses is awful. Well, then, verse 6 says, The Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. That'll teach them not to complain. Well, next, God says, Make a serpent and put it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten will look at it and live. And so Moses makes the serpent of bronze, puts it on the pole, and people who are then bitten look at this serpent on the pole and are healed. They're healed. Now, of course, there's a lot happening here in this story, and commentators note that it would take a study, quite a study, to find all the parallels in mythology here that the Hebrew tradition is alluding to or just, frankly, borrowing from. And the most obvious link and connection is with Asclepios. Asclepios. He was the ancient Greek god for healing, and his symbol was two snakes intertwined around a pole. Two snakes intertwined around a pole. And I think that may be where um, the American Medical Association right, gets its symbol. Right, the little shield with the intertwining snakes around a pole, right? It goes back to this ancient god Asclepius, the god of healing. Well, the idea was that opposites which war within are brought into harmony. And when the opposites within us, which are at war, are brought into harmony, there is a healing that takes place. And so let's think about that, right? This story shared here to shed light on the meaning of Jesus is not about heaven or hell, right? It's about healing here and now. And this idea of opposites warring within us actually makes some sense here in this passage uh, because it goes on, right, to talk about light and darkness and the realities we all have within us, the capacity for tremendous beauty and kindness and love, but we also have shadow sides, right? That can be selfish, can be more narrow and can cause others hurt. And people who are ready to embrace the light are drawn to Jesus, but those who have turned inward on themselves, who have embraced their shadow side, well, they turn away, right? Because the light exposes the darkness. But this is not primarily about heaven and hell, right? It's about the choices we make every day to bring more light and beauty and love into the world or to cause more pain or hurt. And we're reminded here that the light has come into the world in Jesus. And this is an important theme in the Gospel of John, right? John begins with this in the first chapter, which says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, the light of God embodied in a person. Jesus is the best of humanity. He is the light shining in a broken 
and struggling and sometimes too dark world. And he came, of course, not to condemn it, but to heal it, to show us that we too are filled with light, that we too have the capacity to act out of love and to bring into being the kingdom of God here and now. And when the text references eternal life, right, our, our sort of traditional reading in the Bible when we see eternal life is to think heaven, eternal bliss, right? Because that word eternal. But really, it's better translated the life of the ages or the Jewish idea of the life to come. But the life to come in the Jewish mindset was not about an out of historical time and place, right, beyond this world. It was the moment in this world when God's peace, healing, and justice would arrive on this earth. And when we narrow the scope of a text like this to be talking about heaven and hell, salvation and damnation, we miss the point. We miss the point. Because the great hope in this text, right, is that God so loved the world that God gave us Jesus to show us how deep and wide the love of God is, that we are already bathed in that love, and that we can turn the world upside down with that love. As a pastor I follow on Twitter put it perfectly yesterday, the cross wasn't God's response to humanity's sin. It was humanity's response to God's love. Such a perfect reframing of the cross. The cross was not God's response to humanity's sin. It was humanity's response to God's love. It was too much for us to bear. And now just another textual note here. I know we're, we're really getting into the weeds here, but I think it's important as we try to properly understand this text. The word translated condemn here in John uh, chapter 3 is in the Greek, the word krino or krisis, which really uh, means to judge. And judge, not necessarily in the courtroom sense of judge, but judge in the sense of make a decision about or evaluate, right? We make judgments on things all the time, and that doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation, right? It could be a positive judgment just as much as a negative judgment. And so we're invited to judge or evaluate whether our actions line up with the light that Jesus shines, right? Love of neighbor, care for the poor, sight to the blind, healing for the oppressed, and release for the captives. And of course, we know that there's a lot in this world and in us that doesn't line up with that, that there is darkness out there, and we have to name that when we see it, just as Jesus did, but we don't name it so that we can uh, dehumanize people, we can demonize people. No. No, we don't do it imagining that God is condemning them. That couldn't, I think, be further from the point. We name it so that it can be brought to light and so that people, including us, right, have a chance to turn from actions that diminish to actions that expand. And of course, the biblical word for such turning in our lives is repent. Because when the light shines, everything can be seen more clearly. And friends, the light that is shining is love. 
is love. And such a love, when it enters our world, when it enters our lives, is transformative. And so the good news of John 3.16 is this. We are loved and we have always been loved. And in Jesus, we see God's love fully embodied. It is beautiful and transformative and it is for everyone, period. Amen. And namaste. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Mm-hmm.